The HSJ Health Check podcast is sponsored by Cisco. Welcome to this week's HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm your host, Annabelle Collins, and this week I'm joined by Bureau Chief Ben Clover, Senior Correspondent Nick Harding, and our South Eastern Ambulance Services Specialist Correspondent Alison Moore. This week we're going to be discussing what I like to think is a bit of a smorgasbord of pressing NHS and health policy issues, including revelations about the intriguingly named Operation Moonshot, the very latest test, the very latest on the test and trace debacle newly published cancer performance stats, warnings about a second peak and a quick look at the HSJ 100 most influential people in the NHS at the moment. So to start with, um, Nick, let's talk about Operation Moonshot. You wrote um, an exclusive story reading some details about it this week. Would you be able to tell listeners a bit more about what it is and what it means for the test and trace, pro- the test and trace programme? Yes, so the intriguingly named Operation Moonshot is a government strategy to expand COVID-19 testing capacity um, up to 10 million uh, tests a day. Um, It's a hugely at best ambitious and at worst totally totally impossible uh, challenge. Um, But uh, they have clearly set themselves a bit of a stretch target and they I think I think they partly have announced it now because the test and trace program has really come under a lot of uh, scrutiny and criticism in the last few weeks and they needed to um, try and sort of deflect a little bit from that and um, you know sort of set out what their best positive long-term hopes are. So currently testing capacity is around 250,000 tests a day um, that's excluding antibody tests because we don't really know how significant those tests are yet. So if they were to expand COVID-19 tests up to thir- up to 10 million tests a day, it would represent a 30-fold increase, um, which, like I say, is is a very, very, very big ask. I think they've they've called it Operation Moonshot um, because it is literally seen as a, a shooting for the moon type uh, ambition, which is hugely, hugely difficult. So that was one angle of the story. The other bit that I think was interesting as well. So we we found out about this um, through a board meeting, which was held at, by NHS Digital, where they talked about this on the record. The other interesting thing to come from that meeting was that uh, one of NHS Digital's uh, executive directors um, said that there was, at the moment, um, a lack of a stable operating model within the test and trace uh, sort of leadership. Um, he said there's a constant leadership churn, so there's new managers coming and going um, frequently, which I suppose isn't surprising because it is a new organisation. It's been set up incredibly quickly um, in very difficult circumstances. But it was it was notable that, you know, he sort of said these things uh, in a public meeting, kind of confirming what I think everyone probably knew to be the case anyway, but nevertheless interesting when it's, it's said on the record in the uh, public meeting. It's really interesting that they're being so candid on the record. Um, yeah, and and so I suppose what have there been a kind of any new revelations in the next in the last few days since the story was published? Well, I mean, so Boris, I think, mentioned it officially yesterday at his press conference, where he sort of confirmed the 
the 10 million target. Um, I think a few weeks ago there had been some sort of briefings given to one of the Sunday papers that the target was 4 million. Um, but that seems to have been ramped up to 10, um, which is obviously what we reported first. So uh, that's, I guess, sort of having that confirmed now is sort of the, the newest uh, revelation, if you like, to, to the story. Um, clearly, there's still lots of issues to iron out within Test and Trace. There's been a lot of talk recently about people's um, difficulties in getting tests, getting to test centres and getting tests um, booked. For example, we had an apology, I think, on Monday from one of the leaders involved in Test and Trace, Sarah Jane Marsh, well-known NHS exec, who said, uh, sort of put out a heartfelt apology on Twitter saying, I'm so sorry that we can't get tests for everyone. And it's a bit unclear exactly what the issue is. That They're saying that there is capacity for everyone, but there's a there's an issue, sort of a pinch point with uh, the, the processing of the tests in certain laboratories, I believe. So... It's a bit of a strange situation um, and it doesn't really inspire too much confidence that they're going to scale up to 10 million tests a day. Um, but that's what they've said they're going to do. So we shall have to wait and see. So, so sorry, Nick, just to check on the they're doing about one thirteenth of that at the moment. Uh, so if they, my maths is poor um, generally, but if they were to scale up from 250 to 10 million, that would equate to a 30-fold increase. Basically. Oh, three, three, zero. Yeah, three, zero. Righto, because it's yeah. part of the, it's sort of part of the government's PR playbook to kind of go, here's a big number, kind of, yeah. let's get people talking about this big number. And then people go like, oh, this big number will never happen. People go, this big number might happen. And then what sort of drills into people's consciousness in a PR sense is kind of like, there's a big number, big action is being taken. Whereas in fact, what the what the NHS digital directors say in their public board meetings is this is <laughs> this is at the moment uh, uh, suboptimal. Yeah, something echoed by Sarah Jane Marsh yes. and by the public who are instructed to drive kind of quite quite significant distances to get tested. Yeah, I mean, there have been these shockers, haven't we? There have been sort of individual stories, which, you know, I suppose there's no way of verifying if they're true or not. But people have been saying, you know, they live in Cornwall and have been given a test in Inverness to go to. And um, there are sort of anecdotal stories like that. And I'm sure a lot of it is, is true. So clearly there are some problems. And, and yeah, it just sort of feels like it's all very well setting these huge targets. Um, and by the way, of course, it's not as though this government has an unblemished record when it comes to sort of hitting its targets on testing and the controversies that have um, sort of come with that previously. Um, so, yeah, it feels like they kind of already just need to focus on sort of getting the infrastructure in place to deliver the capacity they've got at the moment, let alone think about expanding it up to, to the levels that they're talking about. And I suppose that the, the other thing just to say is that some a lot of a few doctors and scientists are saying, well, even if you get to 10 million tests a day, there's not it's not necessarily going to help you know that much because there are you're going to have a lot more false negatives I think they say or false positives so you know it, it's um, it's all very well testing asymptomatic people but it can be I'm not sure the science is hugely clear on exactly how likely it is that you'll get a correct COVID result if you're a very asymptomatic so there's that issue as well. And 10 million tests a day even if we just assumed that was weekdays right that's 50 million so that's 
unless you test some people more than once a week, but it's basically the whole population of of England gets tested once a week. So that's sort of part of the fabric of national life now. Like you're going to be, you know, EastEnders is on four times a week and you're going to get tested once <laughs> a week. And that's going to, I mean, it's like, I don't know, because one of the ways I sort of described this kind of, and so this is, this is, have we talked about the, how much this will cost? No, Nick, I haven't. I was uh, just about to ask. But... No, no, sorry. <laughs> Nick, how much will cost? Now that you ask. Uh, so there is a report in the British Medical Journal which suggests that the estimated price tag is £100 billion. And just to put that into context, the overall NHS budget is, I think, around £120, £125 billion. So... Um, if that's correct, then clearly, you know, it's an absolutely mm. dramatic amount of money to spend on a project like this. Um, Any so idea who'll be funding it? None at all at the moment. I, I've, I've, the, the, I think the report in the BMJ only said that they've got the it's 100 billion and that's as far as they've got to at the moment. I'm not sure anyone yet knows how it'll be funded. So um, maybe that's something that they need to work out <laughs> going forwards. But I mean, it is very significant that they're saying I think Boris Johnson said, um, or it was the BMJ, I can't remember which, that this 10 million um, target, they, they want it by, you know, no later than sort of the end of next year, I think. that They are looking to do, scale it up incredibly quickly. Um, I think they're putting their hopes on um, uh, implementing these uh, sort of tests which can be turned around much faster. So, you know, currently it, it can take anything from sort of one to four hours, I think, on average to process a COVID test, but they're talking about rolling out and tests that uh, take up to sort of just less than 20 minutes or so but wow. clearly the cost is is absolutely dramatic and you know again it's worthwhile asking maybe that money could be spent on other things as well well exactly and that, and that leads quite nicely onto our next topic ben well, well yeah yeah i mean it's just just 100 billion is such a crazily vast amount of money right such a such a ludicrous amount of money and i know it's cheaper for governments to borrow now than than it usually is uh then it's been before right so some of the normal calculus about tax and spend has changed but well, actually it's not changed that recently it's been the same for, for a fair while but anyway um it, if you're going to have this program which is basically going to pertain to screen the whole population um you know a test for everyone once a week more or less it seems to say then uh, it seems a lot of money to spend if we might also get a vaccine that's going to solve this problem like before this time next year like because because I, I, I you can make sense of that size of a figure if you go look this is going to be a, a chronic situation for everyone uh and the cost to the economy of going in and out of lockdown uh, as and when is so huge that actually this is the cheaper thing to do but but even then, it's not the cheaper thing to do if if uh, if, if a vaccine does come through, you know, in in before next year, which I think I think the most recent thinking was it was going to do. And like you know, fine if you're going to spend loads and loads of money uh, mitigating this somehow, then maybe I could see why the government might want to go. Well, why don't we invest it in a large, powerful um, public infrastructure thing that could maybe be used for other useful things afterwards, rather than just in paying more furlough forever or whatever um but i mean but yeah like you say Annabelle, there, there is perhaps a more pressing need 
for if you had a hundred billion pounds knocking around it's like this morning uh the latest performance data on a and e um elective procedures and specifically cancer came out right now there's been some publicity but i'd argue it's still not been taken it's still not got the profile it deserves about just what a disaster is coming in in cancer performance right so you know there's been some stories there's been some warnings some studies about about what this can mean but just looking at the data this morning um like i say we already knew that like gp referrals for for potential breast cancer were down significantly as people didn't want to go to the gp um or couldn't go to the gp in the in the early stages of of the outbreak in, in england um but what's coming through now and what there's still not very clear uh, lines of accountability on is the screening programs so cancer screening programs sort of sit alongside uh, separate from the normal way you will get your your cancer screen you know by a referral from your gp <clears throat> and these screening programs are like huge they, they do about like uh, about 1.2 million people a year in england and they largely appear to have just not happened um yeah in, in large like there's still very blurry accountability for for who actually owns this but the data this morning has a uh, has one very specific chart which is the number of people treated who got their first treatment for cancer um within within two months right of referral from a screening program and that's uh, that's for breast cervical and bowel cancer which are all ones where you i mean with all cancers you want to pick these things up early but especially on those ones them them and lung um and uh, the figures are really really bad like so so for april to july this year right there were um 2604 people who started their treatment right so this isn't people who might have cancer it's people who who got screened do have cancer and then started treatment, right? Uh, and for the same period last year, it was 7,204. So it's like, it's roughly a third of what it was, right? And it's it's even more stark when you strip out the April figures, because, you know, some of the people who were, who were treated following a screen in April within two months would have been in February and uh, February and March when when things were we're a bit more normal and then, then the figures are even more stuck so so there is this i mean i wrote a story um earlier this month about how just in london their own estimate of the of the 115,000 breast cancer screens they had to cancel um they reckon just purely on the maths that there's 450 uh, people with breast cancer in london who have not who have been undetected let alone started up treatment. So there's so there's delays at every stage. There's delays in people going to get their going to kind of the GP or going to their scan. Uh, there's delays in people getting getting their scan, and then there's delays in people actually getting their treatment. And there's there's some studies about uh, some estimates about the size of the backlog that we're looking at, the amount of people walking around with cancer who don't know about it or with cancer but aren't getting treated for it. Um, and it's it's bizarre to me that it's not quite had the profile yet, but it should do because because the the capacity of the service. Sorry if I sound like I'm ranting, but it's it's really important. Like the the capacity of the service is not enough. It wasn't enough to cope with demand in the first place. 
right? We have compared to most European countries, we have uh, lower levels of the machinery for doing these scans. Um, we have an insufficient workforce uh, on this. So we were already, we already have really poor outcomes for cancer. We, of the cancers that we detect, we detect them later when it's too late or increasingly too late. Um, so, so the system that we have uh, was already overstretched and suboptimal. Uh, and, and now we have a, we're asking that system to catch up when it didn't have the capacity to do its work in the first place, let alone catch up with like a, a more or less lost quarter's worth of performance. Um, and I don't know, it'll be, it, it won't be quite like the asbestos thing where people show up with mesophilioma kind of 15, 20 years later, it'll be in the next, you know, five, five years and sooner uh, that all those shortened lives come to pass you know all those people who could have been saved come to pass so yeah like i said on twitter if i had a hundred billion pounds to play with and it wasn't just you know a distraction from something i don't know pick take your pick uh then i would i would put someone high profile in charge of a of a task force to say we'll find all the people uh that should have been found and we will treat them we will pay for the overtime you know, and we will order in the scopes. Like London's doing a bit of this already. Like it's bought in some stuff. It's agreed like a, a sessional rate for for like extra out of hours endoscopies. Uh, and yeah, I, I've not seen any talk of doing this on a national scale because it is a national problem. I think the thing is, Ben, that there are people advising the government now that this isn't a short-term problem, that it's going to be an issue next year and years to come. And therefore, we really need to get on top of the testing, possibly getting on top of the testing at the expense of doing other things at the moment. I was listening to a lecture the other night by Sir John Bell, who's um, an emeritus professor at Oxford University, a well-known government, government advisor, he was quite adamant that any vaccine isn't going to be 100% effective. And he was really downplaying the impact of it. He was talking about it taking the edge off the virus, but the virus not going away, being something we have to deal with time and time again. And there's a lot of voices that suggest that it's going to become a bit like the flu. We desperately try and get people vaccinated against it each, each year. Um, yeah. The um, more virulent currently than the flu and more, more of a threat to healthcare. So I think probably the, the thinking there is it's worth putting a lot of money into testing because this is the only way we will get back to normal life, not just six months hence, but 18 months, five years hence. Yeah, I mean, I can see that, but it's probably still not as much of a threat to health as, say, cancer. <laughs> yeah. Kind of, it's still the number one big C out there. Kind of, like, I, I get the analogy that you need to sort of dampen down the fire and kind of find a way to, you know, there, there'll be trade-offs about if we can dampen things down on the COVID front this much, then we can go back to this much of capacity. Yes. But like, but you know, this is, this is, uh, I, I would argue. A very urgent thing which I, I, I would agree but I think the the feeling in, in some quarters is that Covid really has the 
potential to stop us being able to deliver healthcare. Um, at the moment, obviously, there's a lot of kids being sent home to self-isolate. That's impacting on parents already. Parents who work in healthcare are now going to have to spend two weeks at home with little Johnny, who's uh, actually got a snipple, but um, someone in his class has had a positive COVID test. So I think their feeling is it's worth investing in this testing to keep the system running. Ben, what's the um, sort of spending on cancer just out of interest, like, you know, annually in the NHS, just for a bit of context? We it, know, gets, we know it, gets, it gets chopped so many different ways that um, it, there are so many different kind of budgets associated with it that uh, I don't know, mm. kind of kind of easily. Um, like most of it would fall, I guess, under the under the hospital budget. Um, it's about it's about forty forty five percent, but which is about forty five percent of the whole thing. But then you know, how do you do you factor in the time that GPs spend kind of on cancer referrals and how much you spend with PHE? Um, I mean, I know it's less than the hundred billion. Uh, you know, and I know that you could, uh, you could, you could say we're going to shave off, I don't know, two billion, and focus on these these people, and you and you would, uh, you could maybe find them and treat them. Um, I mean, for context, fifteen billion is what what people are going to spend on PPE this year. You know, and you, and you, of course you need PPE, um, but I just argue that this is not it's it's. This is a less discretionary spend than I think it it feels like to people because there's always a, a a tendency to to prize the newer thing or to pay more attention to the newer the novel thing, if you will, than um, than the chronic thing. And I just wanted to add um, before we move on to the next um, kind of topic, but we still have no idea about cancer excess deaths. Um, so there's a bunch of uh, studies. Uh, there was one from, I think, Imperial that went, oh, it could be up to 35,000. Mm. Um, there was one from Colonel Farah uh, the other week that said the three months of disruptions probably put three and a half thousand extra uh, deaths in the system. Um, another three months basically cost you another three and a half thousand people um but it's it's difficult because it's you know there will be some people who will die who wouldn't otherwise have died um there will be some people who were always going to die but their death happens a bit earlier yeah um uh, and there'll be some people who, who are always going to die and their uh, and their death won't 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 be accelerated by this um mm. but you know it's it's that first group yeah. <laughs> uh, you'd hope we could focus on yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Ben. Um, and I think kind of on the subject of difficulties during this recovery period or between peaks period or whatever we want to refer to it to, um, Alison, you you wrote um, a piece um, that was really interesting, sort of um, based on some um, confidential documents that were accidentally published. Am I right? Yes, yes they were indeed. Uh, th these were some projections for the Kenton Medway area that um, had been prepared for the CCG um, and obviously had been shared with Acute Trust because they popped up on the board papers of Medway Foundation Trust. 
they looked very interesting, but they were actually quite blurred and the way they were reproduced on that, those board papers. So I put in a, a call to see if I could get a, a less blurry copy. And lo and behold, a few hours later, they, those, that, that particular paper disappeared. Um, so I think it probably wasn't meant for the public consumption, uh, but I had kept a printout, to be pleased to know. And basically, it looked at three different possibilities. One was the reasonable worst case possibility, one was the reasonable best case, and there was one in the middle, um, a bit like the three bears, really, um, which was the more likely case. The reasonable worst case was very frightening without mitigations, with see hospital admissions rising to five times that which we had had in March and April, which is fairly staggering. Don't mm. think that's going to happen. Uh, equally, the reasonable best best case yeah, didn't look too bad. We, yeah, we could probably all cope with that. But again, probably unlikely to happen. In the middle, neither too hot nor too cold, uh, was the more likely case, um, which showed that without mitigations, we would see a peak that was above what we'd had in, in, in April. But this this could be brought down by various measures um, to about half the level of hospital admissions we'd, we'd had in April. Oh, sounds, sounds great. Uh, there's a bit of a ride of it to that, though, because that increased level of hospital admissions would go on from about November this year until the middle of next year. So for a period of upwards of six months, mm. I think that would be a real challenge to any reset um, proposals in not only in Kent and Medway, but to a lot, lot, lot of areas around the country if they saw something similar. Mm. There'd be obviously quite a few beds taken out of operation. There'd be a very pronounced need to have strict PPE um, procedures, strict infection control, mm. um, and potentially um, impacts on things like diagnostics. Mm -hmm. And the NHS is obviously working towards the incredibly challenging and kind of ambitious um, targets set in the phase three letter to try and get things back up to normal. Absolutely, yes. It's, I, don't, I don't see how, when, when you're looking at modelling like this from the CCG, how those targets can be realistic. It, it, they just don't fit together at all. Well, at the moment, the Kent and Medway area is doing reasonably well on its resets. Mm. It, it is moving towards the levels that um, the government wanted to see, NHS England wanted to see. Perhaps not quite there yet, but doing pretty well. Mm. But it's September. Yeah, mm. That's generally quite a good time of the year for the health cool. service. <laughs> <laughs> um, come November, things may, may start to change. The, the issue for me has been that I don't really know what the inputs were to these projections. Yeah. That so was what I wanted to ask. Yeah, because surely, I, I mean, when you were talking about it, um, you know, and then when they're modelling uh, for sort of demand in future, surely a lot of it, or at least some, must depend on what the the lockdown situation is going forward and what impact that has on the yes. spread. And of course, no one can know that. So I just wondered, yeah, what what's the data that they can use to... So realistically forecast. Absolutely. I mean, there's a, there must be a whole bunch of underlying assumptions that may or may not be correct, um, some of which we won't know um, <laughs> until we, we, we pass the peak, whether or not they were correct. Um, I've asked what they are. Um, not been able to get any information on that. But the fact that the CCG has obviously um, paid good money to, 
to have these projections done um, you know, suggests that they must have some level of competence in the company that's prepared them. And they do seem to be guiding their plans for the future. Mm, absolutely. I think there is something quite kind of worrying about the fact that this sort of thing won't isn't being put in the public domain kind of well, indeed <laughs> yes, set by us <laughs> yes yeah, I mean I would have thought that every health economy around the country has similar predictions um perhaps done by this company perhaps done by other companies yeah perhaps done by NHS England um and that's in a sense that's all they have to work on isn't it mm. uh, we, we really don't know what would happen this winter it could be pretty dire particularly if we get a bad flu season on top of covid there are could, some positive a lot better. about flu though I've, I've kind of a few people have said they're not so worried about flu looking at what's been happening in australia that and sort of social yeah. distancing and kind of ramping up vaccination campaigns i think i think people are cautiously optimistic about flu although maybe that's misplaced i don't know I've, I've certainly not heard that the australian flu season is particularly difficult this year mm-hmm. last year it was and we thought yeah. we were all all in for a really really bad bout and that didn't really come to pass or possibly it just got um, um, lost in amongst Covid as yes. people started to segregate themselves and to self-isolate because of Covid um, they would also reduce their, their chances of catching the flu mm-hmm. um, and self-isolation may help this winter you know, if, we, if we don't have the same level of social contact as normal then flu mm-hmm. won't, won't be so intense. Um, I think the vaccination against the flu is a real challenge um, for GP surgeries for and for pharmacists which are the two major mm-hmm. groups that normally deliver it. Mm-hmm. I know and I'm, I think our colleagues at HSJ are very interested in reporting on that more in the coming weeks but um, thank you Alison I think we've got a few more minutes left just to end on something a bit more positive I'm sure we could dedicate most of a podcast to this actually it's our our HSJ 100 um, which has had a bit of a revamp this year. So, um, Alison, you've been you've been leading on this piece of work. Would you be able to just take us over some of the things that are a bit different and some of the key people that we've um, that we've seen in the list this year? Yes, I mean it's been a very interesting year, as you, as you know. In the past, we've we've listed the hundred people and ranked them who we think are going to have the most power and influence in the NHS in the the next year. That generally means that there's a battle at the top between the Secretary of State of the day and the uh, Chief Executive of NHS England. Mm. Um, This year we've said we know these people have power, we know they have influence. We're going to put people like Simon Stevens and Matt Hancock on one side, along with many of the um, NHS England um, top bods and also with the um, Secretary Uh, Shadow Secretary of State for for Health and Social Care. Um, So we're going to say we realise this group of people have power and we're going to look at other people. So we've got some unexpected names. We've got 80 names on the main list, um, which is not ranked. And then we have 20 wild cards, which are people who perhaps aren't being listened to much in the NHS at the moment, but we feel that they ought to. We got together our normal... um, type of judging panel which is a mixture of um, the great and the good from different sectors different perspectives um, try to make it as diverse as, as possible in terms of where they came from and therefore what their views might be and we came up with these interesting 20 people um, one of them will be familiar to many 
readers. Um, Sean Linton, former HSJ correspondent, now working at The Independent, making waves there with his stories. Um, others are people like uh, Professor Carl Hennigan from Oxford. Um, he's qu quite an interesting character. He is the person who pointed out to the government that the way in which PHE was counting COVID deaths meant that once you'd had COVID, you died of it at some point in the future. And therefore, that method of counting actually wasn't very helpful. Um, we've also got David Oliver. He, he, he used to be an advisor to the Department of Health. He's quite outspoken these days. Um, he works in the Royal Berkshire as a geriatrician. He seems to capture the zeitgeist of many of his consultant colleagues. And we've also got Professor Partha Carr. Um, he's an endocrinologist, specializes in diabetes type one, very, very active on social media, very active on behalf of individual patients and has driven the NHS's um, adoption of new technology in, in diabetic care which could have quite a big impact going forward. So you know, some interesting names on both um, lists. Um, it's also more diverse in, in previous years. On the top 80, we've got 40% women. In the past, we probably only had about 30%. And 15% people with BAME background. Mm. Quite a lot of more, more doctors this year as well, which I think probably rep reflects what's happening with the COVID crisis we've seen names coming forward like Professor Susan Gilbert, Professor Peter Horby. Susan Gilbert's involved in the Oxford vaccine. Um, mm -hmm. Peter Horby is involved in um, the recovery trial, which has given us so much useful information about how to best treat COVID patients. They're people who you wouldn't see on the list in a normal year, but um, in this year, I think, have been inc incredibly influential and will, will be so going forward. Mm, mm. Really interesting. And I was also really pleased to see the inclusion of um, George Orwell on the wildcards list, which seems... Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. We don't restrict ourselves just to living people. Absolutely. We the dead as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd, I'd encourage anyone who hasn't read it in, and is interested in kind of the movers and shakers in NHS world to have a look at our list. It's got some really interesting people on there. So thanks very much, Alison and Nick and Ben. We've come to the end of the podcast this week. Um, and as ever, just a reminder that the HSJ House Check podcast is available on the hsj.co.uk website and across all main podcast channels. If you've enjoyed listening, please subscribe, share and rate our podcast and get in touch if there's something you'd like to see us discuss. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week. <laughs>